Children, here are your questions for this morning. You might need help answering this first one. Get, get the theologian in your family. What is a heretic? Two, what happens when people twist the meaning of what the Bible plainly teaches? Three, what should the church do with someone who keeps teaching false things? And four, what are some good ways to make sure a preacher or teacher is being true to what the Bible says? Second Timothy chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 14. This is the word of God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who, is, who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There ends a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. And Lord God, we do thank you for your holy word even as our passage reminds us of how critical it is that your word be guarded. Lord, we have just heard from that which is infallible and inerrant. We thank you so much that we have your truth. And now as we move from the reading of your word to the preaching of your word, we do pray that you would guard, you help us guard your word that in the message we would not veer from that which is critical to our understanding of the value of knowing you, the value of what you've said to us. So send your Holy Spirit, we pray, in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear this morning to receive from you as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Professing Christians veering from the truth and spreading their doctrine, their false doctrine, is nothing new, leading many people astray, people in the church, from the beginning. It's a concern that we've seen in both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's throughout Scripture. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Error continues within that which is called the church throughout history down to this day, down to this very day. Timothy and the leaders in the church are responsible for guarding the truth of the word that they've been given. Paul needs to remind Timothy not to shrink back from the truth that has been passed on to him. 
that whole Old Testament scripture and all the truths of the gospel that have come to light since the coming of Jesus, he is to guard and he's to make sure that anyone teaching or preaching in the churches for which he's responsible are carefully handling, carefully dividing the word. We might grieve over what the world believes, and it is grievous what the world believes, all the false religions, all the unbelief, but when it comes to the church, it's especially grievous when falsehood and lies are promoted in the church. And number one, the church needs to understand what we are for. That's number one. We need to understand scripture and what it teaches. But we also need to know what we're against. And what we're against is that which is untruth, spoken in the name of truth, spoken in the name even of the gospel, spoken even in the name of Christ. Paul warns against irreverent babble. This irreverent babble isn't just idle chatter. It's not just stupid conversation. It's not unnecessary blabber. Those things aren't good, but this has to do with exchanges Exchanges and conversation about God that actually end up being corruptive. The word Paul, the words Paul uses, and he likes to put words together. The first one that we found in verse 14, uh, quarrel about words which does no good, is, is a word that combines the word and a word for strive. Striving words, logo macheo. The one he uses in verse 16, empty sounding in vain, kinophonia. You hear English words in there. But the bottom line is they're corruptive. They're things that lead people astray, lead to their ruin. We saw that in verse 14, but only ruins the hearers. It's amazing how powerful and effective words can be. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Not true, especially if it has to do with being hit with false doctrine that's taken in and embraced. It is destructive and can lead to ruin. Notice that he says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. When you're going more and more, when you're increasing in something negative, you're spiraling down. And that's exactly what's going on here. There are many influencers in the church who are very eloquent. They're good with words. But Paul says they're like cankers. They're like cancer. They're like gangrene. We're more familiar with cancer, unfortunately. There's also gangrene. They're both devastating things that if they're not kept in check or taken care of, they can destroy the body. They're corrosive, not only corruptive, corrupting our thinking and ultimately corrupting our behavior, but they're corrosive. The actual word Paul uses here is gangrene. If we wanted to emphasize it, we would say the way it's said there, gangrena, gangrena. Gives it a little bit of an impact. It's destructive. But again, there's that, that C word that could also be used here. Both of them 
both of them gnaw away like a cancer or a canker. And the source has to be gotten rid of to stop progress. Again, the C word cancer is much more familiar to us. And we recognize that cancer isn't always easily detected. It can sometimes go undetected for quite a while, sometimes very tragically. Some cancers are slow moving, some are fast moving, but that's sort of the way false doctrine can work as well. And then, then if we want to translate it, which I think is better to the understanding as gangrene, it has to be dealt with. I looked up gangrene and how it's cured. If it's not dealt with, it too will eat away at flesh, ultimately taking the life of an individual back in wartime before there was modern medicine amputation was the simple answer to gangrene discovered in a wound can be dealt with with this thing called debridement removing the infected tissue to stop the spread or vascular surgery repairing damaged or diseased blood vessels to restore blood flow to the area again amputation skin grafting hyperbaric oxygen therapy, needing to get oxygen to the area of the wound to bring healing. But something has to be done. Something has to happen to stop the spread of the cancer or the gangrene. You get the point. It's got to be stopped. There are multiple examples in the church of corrupting and corrosive teaching. And the promoters of such things aren't just an error. They might be mistaken, they might be misguided, but however they came up with their positions, if they're speaking against the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're promoting evil. Paul saw this coming to Ephesus. When Paul is leaving Ephesus and they're mourning over his leaving, grieving over his leaving he's with the elders and he says that fierce wolves from among your own selves teaching twisted things will draw away disciples after them in his letters to timothy he's dealing with destructive duos we came across one duo back in first timothy and that was Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says that he had to deal with them very strongly, turning them over, handing them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Alexander, we don't know what happened to him. Maybe he repented. Maybe he just left the church. We don't really know what happened to Alexander, but we discover here that Hymenaeus is still a canker, still a cancer, still gangrene in the church. And now he's got another sidekick named Philetus. And these men are not just erring and misunderstanding things, they're teaching heresies. They veered from the gospel what their teaching promotes, promotes fundamental untruths, strikes at the vitals, strikes at the fundamentals of the Christian faith. 
And if you strike at the vitals, if your vital signs are in danger, that's a red alert. They're striking at the vitals of the Christian faith. What are they teaching? Sounds like such an odd teaching. They're teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Resurrection has happened spiritually for believers. They latch on to things where Jesus will say, you're brought from death to life, etc. That is the resurrection. They say, that's it. The resurrection has taken place. It's the final resurrection. Calls into question so many things of true, sound doctrine calls into question the issues of the end times and the great resurrection, eternal realizations. There's not going to be a bodily resurrection. Don't you find that a little bit disappointing? Let alone heretical? This might be called hyperpreterism. I say hyperpreterism because preterism simply is to say that that much of the prophecy in the New Testament has already been fulfilled early on, before 70 AD. Hyperpreterism says that it's all been fulfilled. Second coming of Christ. Satan and the Antichrist have been thrown into the lake of fire. The resurrection of the dead has happened. The full kingdom of God is here. Judgment was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And the world now continues ad infinitum. It just keeps going and going. People will get saved. People get raised spiritually, but that's it. There's a number of problems with this. I can't name them all, but let me give you one short list. First of all, it calls into question the created order. We were created with body and soul. We were created to live forever. It's the fall that brought in that separation. And anybody of any sound mind, I should say sound doctrine, looks forward to the day when we'll be made whole again. It flies in the face of what every Orthodox Jew believed. Ask Martha, when she's lamenting the death of Lazarus, talking to Jesus, she understands that there will be a great general resurrection. Contrary to Jesus' own teaching on the resurrection, his, his own resurrection, verifying the coming re resurrection of all who believe. In fact, all who don't believe, some to glory, some to perdition. Calls into question Paul's teaching throughout his letters, especially 1 Corinthians 15, where he ties so closely the idea of man being resurrected to Christ being resurrected, mutually dependent for the sake of argument. If since, if one, the other, if not one, not the other. But they're trying so hard to project their false doctrine on the church. It's this, this thing of Gnosticism where, where flesh and body is corrupt, but spirit is good, so it can't be that a Christian can still be bound to his physical body. You can imagine where that could lead morally. John Calvin says this about these two teachers. In doing this, they undoubtedly contrived a sort of allegorical 
kind of a picture of resurrection. which has also been attempted in this age by some filthy dogs. I need to get stronger in my terminology. By some filthy dogs. By this trick, Satan overthrows that fundamental article of our faith concerning the resurrection of the flesh. These men were heretics. But this is just one of a multitude, multitudes of false doctrines in the church. And Timothy has to deal with these individuals. Or the likes of these individuals. They've done Paul serious damage. They've done damage to the gospel. They need to be dealt with. But dangerous doctrines. God does not take kindly to false teachers. If you read Jude, you read Peter, you read what Jesus says about leading little ones astray. Oh, there's hell. But there's a blackest darkness. And so they're dangerous doctrines to themselves, but also to the followers. That distorted doctrine, if not destroying their belief, will damage their faith. Errors haven't stopped throughout history. Heartbreaking tales of denominations, heartbreaking tales of churches that were once faithful. I wanted to find a history of a denomination that would kind of trace soundness to corruption. One that at least was somewhat close to home. And so... My first thought was Unitarian Universalist, but they're so far gone that they should not even be called a Christian church. In, in our culture, even some cults are called part of the Christian church. So I couldn't do the Unitarian Universalist. So I looked up the United Church of Christ and their U.S. history. And they did a good job of describing their history, in fact, like any of us would, writing a history with this impressive catalog, would go back to this small band of followers, disciples of Jesus. And then they go down through history and they come to the Reformation. And they name names like Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin. And my heart starts to sink. I mean, I know this, but reading it in their own documents, Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin. And then they trace their roots. They, they combined the Reformation principles then with the pilgrims from England. And then German, Hungarian, Protestants, all holding to sound doctrine. And then it got worse for me because they even named names like John Robinson. You might not know who he is, but he was the pastor of the pilgrims that were leaving Leiden. He prayed over them. You might have seen the painting of the pastor. It started to get closer to home, and my heart started to get heavier because I'm descended from him. Names 
William Brewster, I know the Phelps are descended from him, talks about the Mayflower and, the, the, and Plymouth, and began to get sadder and actually kind of nauseous. Maybe I'm getting soft. But I'm almost weeping reading this history with all these names, these wonderful names of solid people. Came across Thomas Mayhew. I'm also descended from him. Missionary to the Indians. And I'm thinking so sad. And then my beloved Jonathan Edwards. In their history. And they paint them, almost all of them, in a very positive light. But knowing what's ahead in their history, I became sadder and more weepy. And the denomination eventually ends up telling God what he should have said in the Bible about salvation and about morality. They boast the fact that they have 1,500 LGBT affirming churches. But I want to say this, that when we see the immorality boasted by churches and denominations, understand whether it's LGBT or whether it's supporting some radicals or some leftist movement, those are symptomatic of something far more fundamental, veering from the truth of God's word. That's where it always starts. And it can end up with complete emptiness, people in pulpits lying to people under the banner of the name of the church. And the fact of the matter is every denomination has been stricken by stuff like this. Independent churches are in special danger. Non-denoms with no accountability are super in danger of embracing false teaching and promoting it. We are very careful, but you'll come across some crazy things sometimes, even in our own denomination, veering from the truth. Well, it's usually not overnight, usually not overnight. It can come subtly. It always has to do with, does, did God really say? Comes from seminaries, comes from pulpits, comes from teachers. But I've also come across many individuals who have changed their once sound theology to adapt to their culture or to their family situations. One solid people changing not because they've become better students of scripture, but for a number of reasons and influences. God's word, not adequate to address situations. Heartbreaking rejection of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Professing Christians. Probably fear admitting that they're not really Christians after all. But when influences veer and promote falsehood and drag others along, it's scornfully frowned upon by God. It's a great concern for the churches of the United States. 
survey was done recently of what are called American evangelicals. And I, I struggle with that because I always understood evangelical to mean people who believed in the fundamentals of the Christian faith, who believed the Bible and the fundamental truths of scriptures, the vitals of sound doctrine. In other words, I always thought of evangelicals as what we might call genuine Christians, real believers. Renewed creatures, as an old friend of mine in New Jersey used to call them, born again us. People that are really saved. That's how I always understood evangelicals. So I had a little problem with this survey, but nonetheless, it was done by Ligonier Ministries, not a slouching ministry at all, and Lifeway Research. I'll just throw a couple out there. I'm not big on statistics, but this is disturbing. This was a survey of so-called evangelicals. Jesus isn't the only way to God. 56%. God accepts worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56%. Second, Jesus was created by God. 73%. The question maybe was a little confusing. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Whatever the case is this, is, this touches on an ancient heresy called Arianism. Born out of the controversy with Arianism came our Nicene Creed. But scripture teaches that Jesus was not made, but eternally begotten. 73%. 43% said that Jesus is a great teacher, but he's not God. For the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. 60%. The Holy Spirit a force, not a personal being. And fifth, humans are not sinful by nature. 57%. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. I just want to say, the Bible aside, look around you. The Bible, the Bible teaches us that at our core, we are wicked, we're totally depraved, not good by nature. There were some positive things, which seemed a little odd to me in contrast, that, that a great percent would say the Bible is the highest authority, that they encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus as Savior, that Jesus' death removed the penalty of sin, that People need to trust in Christ alone to be saved, which just simply doesn't add up when we look at what they're saying about Jesus himself, let alone some other doctrines. The situation in the church is dire. Timothy receiving the letter from Paul, though, is not to be entirely discouraged. And I should have spent, planned to spend far more time on the positive. But look at what he says, and this is very important for all of us who are in Christ. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, 
and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows who are his. And he puts that seal upon his people. We dealt with election a little while ago. We're talking about sovereign grace. God puts his seal on his people. I am and you are mine. And I think that we can think of many different things that could be on that seal. You're mine from before time. I will never leave you or forsake me. It's more forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So many assuring, affirming promises from God. The point is he will keep his own. He'll keep his own through his saving grace, the foundation, through the whole system of truth resting on the reality behind it, keeping them on the firm foundation of the fundamentals and the vitals of the Christian faith. You think of the solas, sola, sola faith, sola grace, sola scripture, sola Christ, all for God's glory, all, all, all. All of faith, all of grace, all scripture, Christ alone, all for God's glory. God provides the mechanisms for that foundation. But it's not to be taken for granted. It's why we have to strive to guard the gospel and to have it. There are false teachers in the church. It's nothing new. Most likely what Paul says here in verse 19, the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Very likely Paul is drawing from number 16. And there you'll read Korah's rebellion against God's prophet Moses. And in that scenario, Korah and his people are swallowed up by the earth and all the false teachers are consumed by fire. But there's a remnant that are gods that both warns the heretics, warns the false teachers, but assures God's people. But again, it's not to be taken for granted. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If we name the name of the Lord, we've been set aside by him as holy. And so we're to live holy for him and to live holily in our lives. Comes from trusting the word. Take heart, stand firm on the foundation. It comes from doing or living the word. Remember the parable of the man who built his house on the sand as opposed to the house on the rock. Do you know what the key word in that is? Those who do God's word. It's not those who know God's word. It's those who do God's word are on the solid rock. And then finally, spread the word. The opposite of Alexander I'm I'm sorry, the opposite of Hymenaeus and Philetus. The faithful are to believe and speak 
and spread the word. We just sang a song just like that, Speak, O Lord. But it's not just so that we would hear it, so that we would do. So there's troubling false teaching in the church, but God's people are on a firm foundation. But we need to avoid falsehood like the plague and speak God's truth in love. I want to close with some words from Jude. If you turn, want to turn there, last book before Revelation. It's the book before Revelation. Jude wanted to write something different. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now he gets to the heretics. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Sorry, I have to finish this. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And we'll end there. Let's pray together. Lord our God, each one of us this morning would truly testify what would we do without you? What would we do without Jesus? What would we do without your saving grace?
surely we would be damned. What would we do without your word? We would be utter fools going off into darkness. But you've been so gracious and good to us. You've given us your holy word. You've given us the whole firm foundation to stand upon and your word as our guide, the light of life, a lamp unto our feet. We pray, Lord, that you would help us each to guard your word in our hearts, to protect it, to study it, to know it. We pray for this church that we would never veer from the truth. We pray for our denomination that you would allow us to be steadfast and true to your word. Lord our God, we thank you so much for your many blessings. Lord, speak to us continually through your word that we might speak and echo your glory and your love. Work in us that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.